like that. You Hello, one and all. Welcome that. to like this Monday that. edition of the Logan Blackman Show. Let's give ourselves another round of applause. I know we gave ourselves a little round of applause last Friday because we recorded a show for the first time in a week. In a week. It felt like forever. And then this time, this is the first time we recorded back-to-back shows and what feels like forever as well. I don't know the exact numbers or figures behind this, but it's been a long time since we recorded back-to-back shows. And I'm not, again, I'm not looking at the dates or anything. I could go on Spotify and just check, or Apple Podcasts and check, but I'm not going to, (laughs) just because A, I don't really want to, because it's not that important, and B, just revert back to A. So that's that's the only thing we've got going on here. I am very, that being said, I'm very intrigued with how this show is going to go, because I have absolutely no idea how this is going to go, because this is the first Sunday in a long-ass time that we have not had NFL football. It's a very sad time. So now we've got to wait all the way. We are, uh, what are we at? Like 198 or 199 days until the start of the NFL season. So I don't know if you guys ever watched SpongeBob growing up. Like I did. I would, I would ride my bike. So we didn't have cable television growing up or anything. So I would ride my bike over to my Nana and Papa's house and watch SpongeBob so I could make sure that I was in the loop of what things were going on in elementary school. Because they would talk about Spongebob, go like, oh, did you see this episode? Or, you know, you get this reference, or do you get that? And I would go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I'd ride my bike over to my Nana and Papa's house, sit down and watch Spongebob. That's how I was filled in on all this sort of stuff. And it made me, <laughs> it got, I got some exercise in it as well, while also killing a few brain cells because I was watching Spongebob. But there's a specific episode in Spongebob. It might be the summer camp episode where Spongebob and Patrick go to the prison camp instead of going to Sun, uh, Sun, what is it called? Sun Fun Island. I don't know if you guys remember that one where the Drill Sergeant episode, where it's basically, it's the guy from Full Metal Jackets, the Drill Sergeant from Full Metal Jackets in that episode, as the Drill Sergeant in that Spongebob episode. Or it's when they're talking at Spongebob's front door between Spongebob and Patrick. Either way, Spongebob's going away, and Pat Spongebob asks Patrick, what do you do when I'm gone? And Patrick goes, wait for you to get back. That is about the level I am at right now, and it was really weird not having a single thing of football. Like, even two weeks ago, we at least had the Pro Bowl. Granted, that was a a terrible brand of football, but at least it was some sort of football. We did not have any sort of football. I mean, we had the HBCU Legacy Bowl, which was really cool to see on Saturday, but we didn't have any NFL football. We've got a long-ass time, and then we've got April, We got the USFL, which I'm, again, like we talked about last week, I'm very skeptical about working because if you look at the past two leagues that have attempted to come in during the spring, both of them have failed. The AEF was a mess from the start. That thing was rushed insanely when it first started. Like, they weren't ready to go, and they just said, oh, season started. Announced it in what felt like November or December and started the season like March. And then unsurprisingly, people stopped getting interested once they realized the level of play was so bad, particularly at the quarterback spot. Everybody's favorite and least favorite position on the football field is the quarterback spot. So if that's not doing well and you can't find a single quarterback apart from Garrett Gilbert that is playing really well, you're really not going to sit down and invest too much time in that. It's very hard to. And then the league folded, and then we had the XFL last year or two years ago, and that folded but they at least had the excuse of COVID. But I was one that was really excited when the XFL started. I was a DC Defenders fan because I went through the league when the they did the draft and chose my team based off the quarterbacks. And like the best quarterback in the XFL when it was going on was PJ Walker. It was a unanimous decision. PJ Walker was by far the best overall player 
in the XFL, let alone the best quarterback. But when I was choosing my team, the D.C. defenders had Cardale Jones and Tyree Jackson on their roster, both former Buffalo Bills, okay? And also, Cardale Jones has the infamous quote of, uh, we didn't come to college to play school, we came to play football, and also bragging about how he beat a kid <laughs> in the hospital in NCAA football worse than what the initial report said. That was why I was all in on the D.C. defenders. But then as the season kept going along, it kept getting worse and worse. I was like, I'm not really fully invested into this. And now we've got the USFL back, which we went over the history of the USFL, I think on Friday or two weeks ago. I can't really remember exactly, but I'm not, my hopes aren't the highest. Okay. The brand of football is not going to be good. And I'm extremely nervous for when next year, if the USFL somehow, by the grace of God, lasts past 2022, when we have the XFL and the USFL going on at the exact same time. I am very nervous for that. We proposed the opportunity last week of having the USFL and the XFL play the same time, but the XFL and the USFL get their different rules, kind of like what the AL and the NL used to do in baseball with the universe. Now we have the universal DH, but what they did with the DH where the AL only had DH and the NL didn't have it at all. That's what we proposed. Will it happen? Probably not. Both these leagues will be folded by the time 2024 comes around. And I, I'm starting to get less and less interested in springtime football as it keeps going. I mean, this has been something that has been tried numerous times throughout the history of the, the NFL. They've always had some sort of quote-unquote competition during the springtime to, to, to appease the American audience because I know, like we said last week, we're a bunch of stupid idiots that will go, oh, that's football. We're going to watch that because we are so ingrained and so entrenched in football that it doesn't matter what level it is, if it's football, more times than not, we will be sitting down to watch it. Unless it's that stupid indoor football league that Johnny Manziel was in a few years ago, the fan-controlled football. Unless it's that, most people sit down and watch football. Like My dad and I had season tickets to the Iowa Barnstormers and the Arena Football League for eight years. Like It's football in the spring. We don't have football going on. We're going to watch some sort of football, even though it's arena football. That was fun to watch. I would watch the Arena Football League or I guess the IFL now, the Indoor Football League, because the Arena Football League is a, 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 throughout its history has been financially unstable. I think it's folded like four times. And I, it, right now, if it's still a thing, the last time I checked it, it had four teams in the league. So it's not really a sustainable thing right now with all the teams pretty much jumping to the Indoor Football League, which is where the Iowa Barnstormers are at now. But at least that's entertaining because it's a different brand of football than the football we are used to. It's smaller smaller area. It's a 50-yard field with 25 or 20, I think it's like 22 and a half yards wide. Less players on the field, a lot really big hits. The crowd is right there. Awesome brand of football. Even though, even though the quality of players is not that high, it is still an awesome, awesome thing to watch. And I loved going to Iowa Barnstormers games growing up. And they won a championship a few years ago. Me, my, myself, one of my friends that we went to Barnstormers games with, him and his dad also had season tickets, and my other friend Noah went to the championship game. And yes, you can call us plastic fans, whatever. I went through the hardships with Ryan Venna and Carson Kaufman. So I have a right to sit down, sit my happy ass in the end zone, and watch the Barnstormers win a championship because I never thought that was in the realm of possibilities when I was growing up. Now, J.J. Radrink was awesome. Brad Banks played for the Barnstormers as well, but that didn't really work out. It was more of a, wow, Brad Banks is playing. He, he did all right. Let's call it like that. He did all right. J.J. Raderink was easily the best quarterback the Barnstormers had during that time frame when I had season tickets there. And there were some interesting quarterbacks, like Charlie Villanueva was one of them, or Carlos Villanueva, one of the two, not the basketball player. 
One of the Villanuevas was a quarterback for the Barnstormers. Uh, what was the other one? Brennan. There was another quarterback. The first quarterback. is number 11. Not Miles Brennan. What was his name? Another quarterback. Mike, I'm blanking. He was the first quarterback. Then it was Villanueva. Then it was Venna. And then it was Banks. And Because I always wanted a Brad Banks jersey, but they never had him. And then it was Raderink. And then it was Kaufman. And then I think it was Raderink again. And then it was quarterbacks that I don't remember because we didn't have tickets after that. But this is a long-winded thing of saying this show is going to get a lot more interesting as we get closer to the NFL draft. Because right now, there ain't no football on. So we are going to have to be creative. This is going to go back to the COVID times when the COVID first kicked off, when everything was canceled. We're going to be like that. It's going to test my creativity to the nth degree. We're going to see how smart I am, how hilarious I am, how quick-witted I am to come up with new ideas every single day. And yeah, that's why you should make sure you're following Logan Blackman Show on all forms of social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, the Apple Podcast and Spotify account. Twitter is Logan underscore Blackman. The Instagram account is Blackman Logan with the show's Instagram account being the Logan Blackman Show. One Facebook page to search Logan Blackman Show should pop up. Give it a thumbs up. YouTube page, search Logan Blackman Show again should pop up. Subscribe to that channel. Watch a few videos. Give them a thumbs up there and there. And then, of course, you're listening to it right now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Make sure you're subscribed on at least one of them or both. I would appreciate both, but, you know, one of them will do. And make sure you leave a rating on five stars out of both. Because remember, we found out we could do that on Spotify now. And if you didn't like the show or if you did love it, either way, make sure you leave a description down below, at least on Apple Podcasts, because I know you can leave a description down on there. I don't know if you can do that on Spotify. But, yeah, make sure you're following me on all forms of social media, like we just said. And this show, (laughs) this Sunday... Uh, February 20th was an interesting day because, again, we didn't have football. So we had to find new ways to, I don't know what you want to call it, entertain ourselves, I guess. So the morning dragged. Like, this morning was a very, very long process. Like, and when I'm talking long process, I literally went outside. And it was a nice day, beautiful day. Should have probably spent more time outside. But I went outside today for a grand total of probably five minutes and then I was like, you know what? I'm going to set a garbage can. I was like a little, uh, what do you want to call it? A recy- it was one of those tiny recycling bins that had a bunch of leaves and sticks in it for firewood, for a fire pit. And I got my football for my room. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try and try and make it. I'm going to stand on one end of the yard and try to throw this football into this basket. I, long story short, I did not make it in the basket one time. I did it on three attempts. And the first time I hit the tree. And I was not aware of where the tree was, and I hit the tree, so I had to reposition myself, and then it just didn't work out. So then I went to the, the next best place after trying to do it a strenuous workout like that. I went to Bebop's, a very nutritious place for those who are outside of the state of Iowa. If you're from the state of Iowa and know what that is, you're not allowed to speak on this matter. But for me, that is a very nutritious source, and it fueled my body after that intense workout that I just went through. And um, went home, ate and sat down and watched some UNI basketball. UNI Panthers are taking on Missouri State today, and this was basically for the first place spot in the Missouri Valley Conference. Now, Loyola has not played as many games as the UNI Panthers in the conference, and UNI routed Missouri State, and they shot the lights out. Bowen Bourne played really well. A.J. Green was A.J. Green. Every single starter apart from, I think, Heisey scored double digits. 
I'm not looking at the I'm not looking at the stat sheet right now. I probably should do that. What, what who was the only person that didn't score double digits in the starting lineup? Tywin Pickford. Heisey got 14 points. Tywin Pickford got six points. He's played only 22 minutes because Bowen Bourne was playing out of his mind for a period, scoring again 17 points in 27 minutes, also getting four assists. With AJ Green, though, 21 points and seven assists with three rebounds, playing in 39 minutes. Sat for only one minute. And it's crazy how bad this team was last year. And I say bad, just really inexperienced. They lost some really key pieces from the season prior. They lost the likes of Isaiah Brown, Spencer Haldeman. They were losing some key pieces. Two starters right there from a very, very good UNI Panthers basketball team. And you're replacing them with High C, who's a freshman, Bowen Bourne, who's a freshman. And top it all off, your best player, A.J. Green, has to have season-ending surgery. So the team was not playing very well. And this year, the Panthers are back playing very good basketball, and A.J. Green coming off the injury is back to playing like himself. But when the season started, he was very up and down in regards to his shooting percentage, but now he's back, and it feels like this team can go somewhere. And they're sitting right now 12-4 and in the Missouri Valley Conference, 16-10 and overall in the number one spot in the conference. Very, very exciting time, and it's going to be awesome because the last game of the regular season – is against the team that currently is sitting second in the Missouri Valley Conference in Loyola. They're at 11 and 4. You and I against 12 and 4. They play on Saturday, February 26th at 5 o'clock in the McLeod Center. So that is going to be, that's just going to be a fun one. That's going to be a fun one. Is that one, is that in Northern Iowa? Please tell me it's in Northern Iowa. Because if it's not Northern Iowa, that's going to be very upsetting. Come on, please. Yes! It's in the McLeod Center. Okay, I didn't want. I wanted to make sure it was right, but they play Indiana State first. They play them on the 23rd, so that'll be a very crucial game right there. In-state rivals Drake got a big-time dub against Loyola the other day. You and I, a few weeks ago on February 13th, or last week, I guess, uh, got annihilated by Loyola, losing 85-58. to So that was a big loss. Hopefully the Panthers can rebound past that. They played very, very well this game. Hopefully they can carry that momentum past Indiana State and then carry that into the game against Loyola. Indiana State team that they took to overtime back in January, beat them 80-74. to So we'll see if they can carry that against the Sycamores and go into the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament with the one seed. And it'll be very interesting to see if the UNI Panthers, if their resume is strong enough, if they can make the tournament based off of just the regular season. Because you know, in these sub-major conferences or non-major conferences, you have to win your conference tournament. Usually these conferences like the Missouri Valley or the Atlantic 10 Conference or conferences of that standard have to have a team, usually just one team. And it's the team that wins the conference tournament unless you have an insane team in the regular season where they win like 30 games or something like that. Unless you have a team like that, there's a very rare chance that someone from Missouri Valley will make the tournament if they just win the regular season conference title. So the UNI Panthers, if they win the conference title at 16-10, and 10, which is what they stand right now, at best case scenario, they can be 18-10. and 10. This would be a very strange way to get into the tournament, especially when you look at the start of the season when they got beat by Nichols State in Vermont. But they also had very close games against Arkansas, beat St. Bonaventure as well. But those first two games of the season, that'll be very, very tough to shake for these the bracketologists or whatever, the people that make the brackets, that's going to be hard for them to shake. It's going to be very hard. Losing to Nickel State and Vermont, both at home, and especially losing my double digits to Vermont on my birthday, that's not a that's not a good look. So you and I, if they want to make the tournament, this is you could look at this rightly or wrongly. If you and I wants to make the NCAA tournament, they have to win the conference tournament. They have to. And there was a few years ago, 
when COVID first kicked off, you and I, like we said, was awesome during the regular season. That season we just talked about, like Isaiah Brown, Haldeman, those guys, they were awesome. Won the regular season conference title, and in the first round of the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament, lost to a play-in team in Drake, who had to play Evansville, I believe, the week, the day before. And they lost to them. Thankfully, the bracket never got released because there have been a lot of angry natives of Cedar Falls that day. Because, good Lord, that team was very, very good. But you can't lose to a team like Drake at that time, a Drake team that was not very good, especially a Drake team that you beat twice in the regular season. That's not a good look, especially in the first round of the conference championship, conference tournament, when you are the one seed. So we'll see how UNI does with that. Hopefully they can end the season on a high note and just take home a conference championship for the regular season and then carry that momentum down to St. Louis for Arch Madness. Like That's the goal. Here, hold on. I got I got a sneeze. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. But yeah, it'll be interesting. But they won the game today. Big time win. And another thing that was going on today was the Daytona 500, which is always a great spectacle. If you don't even, if you don't watch racing, like ever, I would just recommend you watch the Daytona 500. It is always a great time. My dad and I have watched every single Daytona 500 as far back as I can remember. And this one, was it felt like it went really fast. There was no rain delays, which felt like it's been a thing for the past, I don't know, 15 years. It's That's not an exact number, but it feels like it's been a very long time since we've had a rain, or not had a rain delay at the Daytona 500. But my dad and I drive, me and my dad's drivers are Chase Elliott and Kyle Busch. Been a Kyle Busch fan since I was a little kid when he was on Hendrick Motorsports. Transitioned to... Uh, Joe Gibbs racing and start dominating there. Whether you like Kyle Busch or not, you can't deny he is one of the greatest drivers of all time. And some people out there, it's kind of like that elusive Super Bowl for like Dan Marino or something like that, where people view them as one of the greatest of all time. But until you get that one ring, you're like, okay, are they considered a top five quarterback? Are they considered a top five this, top 10 even? But Kyle Busch has to be mentioned in that conversation. He has to be. Like, there was a year he broke his leg, and I think he won, like, seven races in a row or something and on on in route to winning a championship. Like, Kyle Busch has been ridiculous, but that, not, that Daytona 500 championship has been eluding him. In this race, he finished sixth, right behind Eric Almirola, and he had a little push towards the end, had a little push towards the end, but ultimately couldn't get it done, got in a little wreck in the early stages of the race, but Austin Sindrick, a rookie in his first ever Daytona 500, comes away with the win, and it's sadly to say... It's all downhill from here. You start off your career winning the pinnacle of racing, uh, the chances are you're not going to continue winning the Daytona 500 for the rest of your career. I could be wrong. Maybe he drives for 20-plus years and wins 20 straight Daytona 500s. Maybe that's the thing that happens. But I would really be surprised if that does. I'd be shocked. I, I wouldn't have any real issue with that. I have no real beef towards Austin Sidrick. But uh, I don't like Ford, and I don't like Penske. So that's kind of my issue there. And Austin Cedric himself, don't really care about. But it, it would have been cool to see Bubba Wallace winning it very close. as his second second place finish in the day, 2500. Wanted to see him get one. If Kyle Busch or Chase Elliott couldn't get it, and Chase wasn't really making any moves in the race anyways. I would have liked to see Ryan Blaney win it as well. Also a Penske guy, but Ryan Blaney and Chase Elliott are best friends. So I was cheering. I, I was, I'm fine cheering for Ryan Blaney. Brad Keselowski, he can screw off. He wrecked two people in the race, caused two of the wrecks in this in this race. But yeah, it was a fun race. It went really fast, and we were flipping back and forth between the UNI Panthers game, then we had the race on, and then we had another thing that was on today was the U.S. Women's National Team. They were taking on New Zealand and routed 
New Zealand. Routed them 5 nothing, which isn't too surprising. I mean, it's the United States women's national team. They're always the number one team in the nation, or number one team in the nation. Number one team in the world in regards to soccer rankings. You see a team that lines up against USWNT, you're like, okay, really? You're expecting them to keep up with us? And the thing was, I turned on the game today, and I didn't know what the starting lineup was looking like. I didn't even realize the game was going to be on today. And then I flip it on, and I only recognize like three names. And it was Sauerbum, the captain, Ashley Nair, the goalie, and Mewis. So those were the only three people I recognized the entire team. And they made it easy. At the end of the first half, they were up 3-0. And the craziest part about the fact that they were up 3-0 was that all of them were own goals by the exact same person. Michaela Moore, three own goals. One in the fifth minute, one in the sixth minute, one in the 36th minute. That is all. This was her 50th appearance for New Zealand as well. 50th. And she'll remember that appearance for the rest of her life. And thankfully for her and her psyche and her mental health, she got subbed out right after the third one. That's not great. Like, you are down, and you scored all three of those goals. One of them deflected right off her face. So it's not it's not a great look. But the U.S., they ended up scoring two more. Hat scored one in the 51st minute. And Mally Pugh scored in the 93rd minute as well. I didn't even see that one. I thought the game finished 4 nothing. I didn't even see the last goal. So the fact that I'm saying it was 5 nothing is a surprise to me because I thought it was 4 nothing. We stopped watching at the 90th minute mark. Like, okay. Okay. This game's done. New Zealand ain't coming back. He scored three own goals in the first half. Morale's already at an all-time low. You can't really build yourself back up from that. If you can, fair play. But 90% of teams out there cannot do that. And yeah, they didn't. Lost 5 nothing. Now the United States women's national team will be taking on Iceland. They'll be taking them on Wednesday at 8 p.m., in the third group stage game of the She Believes Cup, and I would not be so, I mean, it'd be kind of more surprising if the United States did not route Iceland as well. I'm not really sitting here and saying Iceland's going to pose a real threat <laughs> to the United States in this game. But yeah, they, they always route everybody. If they don't route them, they usually always win. Because I, the last time I remember seeing them lose in a big tournament game was against Japan in the World Cup final in 2000. 2000 and because they beat them in 2013 in Canada because that was when Carly Lloyd was on one Carly Lloyd was going ridiculous at that World Cup I think it was 2013 was it 2013 I, the only thing that I really uh, when was that World Cup when was that because I was in Canada and again Carly Lloyd went off and they had those gross neon green and black uniforms and the white uniforms like I I kind of got burnt out of neon back in like middle school. So maybe that's where I'm coming from in this, where it's just like, I, I remember one birthday, I got a neon shirt, neon shorts, neon socks, and neon shoes. The highlighter yellow or green color, that's what I got. So after that, a switch flipped in my mind and went, I don't want any more neon anywhere on me. So when you hear me bash the Seattle Seahawks uniforms and go, why, Logan? The Seahawks haven't done anything to you. But yes, even if I didn't have a neon, if I wasn't an enemy towards neon, you cannot sit there and tell me that the Seattle Seahawks neon green uniforms are cool. Those are arguably the worst uniforms in the NFL. And if I knew I was going to bring up these uniforms, I would go, yeah, let's do a uniform ranking list and go over the worst uniforms of all time. Now, I'm not saying these World Cup uniforms are the worst of all time. They weren't the worst of all time, but they definitely weren't great. But what was it? 20, 2015. 2015. 
Because the women, the men's World Cup, the last World Cup the United States men's national team went in was 2014. So I couldn't remember if it was the year before or the year after, but either way, Carly Lloyd went off. It was Abby Wambach's last tournament. But Japan beat the United States back in the 2011 final, I believe. Right? Or in Japan. No, wait. Hold on. I need to check. <laughs> now I'm starting to doubt myself. Yeah, okay. They beat them in the final in the World Cup, and then I believe they beat them in the championship in the Olympics as well. I could be wrong about that. I feel like they beat them on penalties. Japan did. Hold on. <laughs> I'm trying to remember when this was. Okay. Do they have, like, results, tournament results on Wikipedia? Because that's what I'm trying to figure out here. So they won back-to-back World Cups. They're running up in 2011. Oh, they beat Japan. Did they beat Japan in gold in the? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Was this the penalties one, or was the World Cup penalties? No, they just won on the World Cup was penalties. The World Cup was penalties in 2011. Let's hold on, just to make sure I got that. Okay, yes, yes. I've got my World Cup speaks. I got okay. I've got everything figured out now. I'm trying to remember all these things. Oh man. Okay, the World Cup in 2011 was on penalties. That was penalties. Olympics, that was the revenge tour. Beat Japan then. And then in 2015, Carly Lloyd goes off on a tournament and becomes the best female player in the world. And at the time was seen as the next captain. But then they started rotating the captain between her, Rapino, Alex Morgan. And I don't know if Becky Sauerbrunn was considered a captain back then, but I know the first three were considered the captains. Becky's the captain now. But, man, yeah, that World Cup was awesome. And they ended up winning it in 2019 as well. That World Cup was awesome as well. Beautiful tournament in 2019. Beat the Netherlands in the final. We talked about that one for a little bit because we were doing the Gold Cup stuff at the exact same time for the United States men's national team. And Alex Morgan did the tea drinking celebration against England, which was awesome. And it got everybody associated with England pissed off. And it was beautiful. You had them complaining all over the TV and everything. Beautiful, beautiful bit of trolling from Alex Morgan. But yeah, it's very rare you see the United States women's national team struggle. Like, if you look at all the World Cup results they've had, the lowest place they have finished in the World Cup was third. And they've done that three times. They have finished champions in the World Cup more times than not. Wait, no. They equal. <laughs> they finished champions more times than they finished third in the World Cup. The other time, like in 2011 that we talked about, they lost some penalties to Japan. But this got me thinking today. I, I really didn't know the route the United States needed to get to the 20, uh, 2022 World Cup in Qatar for the United States men's national team. But like we talked about a little bit ago, the United States missed the 2018 World Cup. The last World Cup they were in was 2014, which was one of the best World Cups I've ever watched, especially from a U.S. men's national team fan point of view, because of the fact it was awesome. You're in the group of death. Everybody's expecting you to come at least third, at most third. You're in a group of Germany, Portugal, and Ghana. And not only that, you score a goal against Ghana. Clint Dempsey, the GOAT, my favorite player of all time, scores in 30 seconds against Ghana, and then John Brooks scores in the 86th minute, and then you should have beat B Portugal. Should have beat Portugal. Graham Zuzzi walking out the field, extended the play, and Ronaldo Who was it? It wasn't Eder. Eder scored the goal in the 2016 Euro final against France. I don't remember who scored the goal against the United States, but it finished 2-2, and then he lost to Germany. But it didn't matter, because Ghana either tied or beat... I'm trying to remember all these World Cups. I can't... They're all mushing together in my brain right now. I'm sorry. But either way, that was awesome. And then they played a great game against Belgium. Tim Howard had one of the greatest games. Actually, probably the greatest individual effort for United States men's national team history against Belgium. And then 2014, or 2018, sorry, you lose to Trinidad and Tobago, the last place team in the World Cup qualifying group. You needed to beat them. Panama ended up winning the game, and they knock you out of the World Cup. 
one of the worst moments I've ever had in my sporting life was the United States versus Trinidad and Tobago. I was in my roommate, not well, my future roommate's room at William Penn. We had a, the Chicago Blackhawks for the Montreal Canadiens on the TV, and I was following the United States versus Trinidad and Tobago on my phone. I didn't know about streams at the time. Like, when I say streams, you know what I'm talking about. Like, stream streams. Not like the streams you get on ESPN's, like, streams. I'm trying not to incriminate myself here. But I didn't know about that. So I was just following on Twitter. I was following on this random website I found to get score updates. I get the goal, the update that Trinidad scored. And the United States now eliminated. I talked to my dad for about a half hour after that game. Just frustrated as all hell. Because if you know me, you know how much I dis- my disdain for Michael Bradley. In my opinion, now this is my opinion, so you can't, you can't tell me it's wrong because it's my opinion. And I host a podcast, so what do you know? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. But Michael Bradley, to me, is the worst captain in the United States men's national team history. And there's been some interesting captains. And that comes from a point of view, again, Clint Dempsey is my favorite player of all time growing up. I wore number eight in soccer because of Clint Dempsey. It's like when people look at players that wear number eight in anything. They go, oh, you're wearing number eight for Kobe. No, I was wearing number eight for Clint Dempsey. Like, I remember switching my number from number 30 to number 8 because, you know, we're the Blackmans, so we show up late to everything. So when we were choosing jersey numbers, I was stuck between, like, 30 and one other number, and I don't remember what it was, and chose 8, and that's my go-to number for everything, though. I know in football I wore number 2 and number 12, but my go-to, my favorite number is number 8. And he took the captaincy from Clint Dempsey, basically based off the fact his dad was the former manager. Michael Bradley is the second highest cap appearance maker for the United States men's national team. But I don't consider him in the GOAT category for the United States at all. Like, I remember growing up watching Michael Bradley attempt to play for the United States men's national team. And the only thing I can really remember him doing that was, like, good was his halfway line goal against Mexico and the goal that should have counted against Slovenia in the 2010 World Cup. Those are the only two positives I can remember from the Michael Bradley era of the United States men's national team. Because it all culminated with the United States missing the World Cup in 2018, losing in Trinidad and Tobago. And the thing with Bradley was every single time he messed up, there was some sort of filtered excuse for him. It went from, oh, he's a number six, a defensive midfielder. Oh, no, he's not a number six, he's number eight. Oh, he's not a number eight, he's an attacking midfielder. Oh, he's not an attacking midfielder, he's number six. And it just went back and forth. And then it's like, can we just admit he's not very good at anything? Because it felt like every single time he played a different position. Because after Josie Altidore got hurt in the 2014 World Cup, in the first game against Ghana, he got hurt in like the 30th minute or something like that, pulled his hamstring. The United States was forced to play Clint Dempsey at striker. And Clint Dempsey was playing in a 4-4-2 diamond at the time. So you had... Bradley sitting deep, and you had, uh, who are the other players? Jermaine Jones was in there as well. Jermaine Jones was starting, but they switched formations pretty much to playing basically a 4-2-3-1. Dempsey as the striker, Michael Bradley sitting right behind him. And it just rotated wherever Bradley was playing. It's like, oh, that's not his position. That's not his position. Then he played center back at Toronto FC. I don't even know what he's doing now. He's still at Toronto FC as far as I know, but I, I do not like Michael Bradley. So when he's not been playing for the United States, it gives me all joy in the world. I'm so happy he does not hold the all-time appearance record for the United States men's national team. I'm so happy Kobe, jo- Kobe Jones still holds that record. But that night in 2017, or 28, no, yeah, it was at the start of the hockey season. When they missed that World Cup, that was one of the worst nights ever. So now I hope and pray, and I have this inkling in the back of my head to where the United States should make every World Cup they attempt to go to. We are too big of a country. We have too many resources. We have too many players 
to select to where we shouldn't at least be making a World Cup. I don't care. Well, I do care. But it doesn't hurt me as bad if the United States went to the 2018 World Cup and got swept in the group stage. I would have rather had that than not making the World Cup at all. Like, Panama got swept, and they got destroyed in the World Cup group stage. I wish that was the United States. Instead of sitting at home wishing that the United States was there and knowing that, oh, yeah, they lost to Trinidad and Tobago. So every single time I look at the United States men's national team, the World Cup qualifying groups, and I make sure to reference this or preface this every single time I talk about the United States, that if they make the World Cup, it's no longer when the United States makes the World Cup. It's always if the USMNT makes the World Cup. If, 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 if. Because that thought never crept into my mind until 2017. Never once. Never thought about it. And the U.S. had way worse teams growing up than that team that missed the World Cup in 2017. Like they had some stinky players playing for the United States. And they missed the World Cup in 2014 with Bruce Arena as the head coach, who is now coaching the MLS. And people kind of just brushed aside that he missed the World Cup of the United States. But that did, in fairness, usher in a whole new development project for the United States men's national team to where we are in a better state now than what we were prior to missing the World Cup. Our young players that are coming through the youth systems right now are some of the best young players, not just in the United States youth system, in the world. You're talking about players like Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson, who is the most informed United States men's national team player at this point in time. He's been balling out for Red B. Salzburg recently. Like, we've got some good players. We got some very good players. Jonas Moose has been balling out for Valencia. Ricardo Pepe just got a big move to Augsburg. Like, we've got some really nice Giovanni Reina for Bruce Dortmund. We got some very nice, 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 nice young players. So maybe that was a nice thing that was needed to happen in order to push the United States men's national team into another realm. But right now, as we sit here on February 20th, the United States still has not made the World Cup. Which isn't expected. I mean, you had to go on an insane run to make the World Cup. I think if they beat Canada on the 30th of January, I think they would have made it. I I don't know the exact math, but they also shit the bet against Panama back in October. That was not ideal either. So you have two losses in World Cup qualifying right now. Two losses. You won the Gold Cup with a pretty much backup squad, basically trying to fill out the rest of your squad for the World Cup, which a lot of people going into the tournament were very upset about, but we made sure to note that that was the, the main focus going into the tournament was that, hey... This is just trying to fill the holes in the squad. We know who's making it for certain portions. I would bet there's about 15 spots that are locked for the 2022 World Cup if the United States make it. I'd be willing to bet that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong and I'm just overvaluing some of the players they have at their disposal, but that tournament was used to fill out some squads. Some players that played in that tournament, like Miles, Miles, uh, Miles Robinson, Kellen Acosta, Matt Turner, players like that, put themselves not only in spots to where they were on the squad, but in spots to where they could be starting. Matt Turner had one cap before the tournament started. One. And he became the goalkeeper of the tournament and is now in contention to be the number one starter for the United States men's national team. Miles Robinson came in a very athletic center back for Atlanta United and came out as the possible number two center back in the United States system right now. And maybe number one, depending on who you ask, because John Brooks can't stay healthy to save his life. So depending on who you ask, Miles Robinson might be the number one guy right now. But that's what that tournament was used for, and I think it worked out beautifully for Greg Berhalter and co. And he beat Mexico in a final. That was awesome. That was so awesome. And now you get a chance to beat Mexico again, this time in Mexico. The other two times they played the Mexico, Mexico this year, 
were in tournament finals. And, well, I guess three. They beat them three times this year. Once in World Cup qualifying and two finals. The Co- uh, CONCACAF Nations League final, Gold Cup final, and the World Cup qualifying, which is a massive game. That World Cup qualifying game was massive. Dosa Cero against Mexico on October 7th. Or no, 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 no. That was the, world, that, the day after my birthday, November 12th. That was the biggest game. That was a massive game. That was bigger than any of the other results they had up until that point. They needed that game. All of those games have been in the United States when they had played Mexico. If you look back on June 6th, they played in Denver when they won the CONCACAF Nations League final. You look back in August 1st, they played in the Raiders Stadium in Las Vegas, Nevada. And they played in Cincinnati. All games in the United States. Now they're going to probably the hardest stadium to play in all of CONCACAF. And CONCACAF gets kind of a bad rap in some categories because of the fact these countries aren't the biggest. Like Panama, Costa Rica, Honduras, El Salvador. These are not big-time countries. Even Canada, to a certain extent, in regards to soccer power. So when you look at these countries, you go like, oh, the, the United States should route them. And they should. They really should. But you look at these stadiums they're going to, how intense these atmospheres get with how young of a team the United States has. I kind of, to a certain extent, give them a pass. Like the game against Panama, they just did not show up. One of the worst games of against Panama, they did not show up. Against Honduras... A few weeks earlier, they that one, or about a month earlier, over a month earlier, that game was awful until they flipped a switch and won 4-1. to one. Like, they had that. And you have these types of games with this young team on the road, but Azteca Stadium in, New Me- in Mexico City is the toughest stadium to play in all of CONCACAF. Toughest stadium, bar none. Like, it's not even really close, at least to me. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Estadio Azteca in Mexico City. 87,000, basically 88,000 seats in this stadium. Sold out. You are public enemy number one. There are chain link fences around certain portions of the stadium. You are not welcome down there. And that is your next World Cup qualifying game, March 24th. Just over a month from today. That is your next World Cup qualifying page. And if you beat Mexico, I'm pretty sure that would get them in the World Cup. I'm pretty sure that would get them in the World Cup. And I found an article on SportingNews.com, because I wanted to see the exact route the United States needed. And this was posted on January 30th, 2022. Well, obviously, I wasn't going to bring up an article from 2021. That would have just been really stupid on my part, so I would I would not do that. But here's how the article goes. I'm not... Uh, do I want to go through the entire article? I might as well. It's not like an insanely long article, but it's not loading either, so that's kind of a... It loaded right as I went back, so that's awesome as well. But yeah, so here... This is just not working for me, is it? Okay, let's go. <laughs> hey, I finally got it. After a 2-0 loss to Canada, and with only four matches remaining, now the U.S., to be fair, they won their next game against Honduras 3-0. A big-time 3-0 win against Honduras, right after the Canada loss, which is an awful game. Awful, awful game against Canada. Uh, it's pretty complicated. Now you're tied on points with Mexico, but again, you got the tiebreaker, so you got you got goal difference right now. The painful qualifying failures that resulted in the United States missing out of the 2018 World Cup may feel like a remote scenario, but these... But a series of poor results could bring them back to those bad memories. During that 2018 cycle, the United States unexpectedly unexpectedly lost at home to Costa Rica, and it fell on the road to an already eliminated Trinidad Tobago on the final day. Again, a Trinidad Tobago team that was in last place at the time they played them. Those two results only prevented the United States from qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. After qualifying for the previous seven World Cups, 1990 to, 19, to 2014, now granted one of those was at home, <laughs> so you, you had to make that one. It felt like a foregone conclusion the United States would always make it to the Big Dance. 
But the humbling lesson 20 team taught fans and players alike that the slightest misstep in qualifying could bring about devastating consequences. Yada, yada, yada. You know what that is. You know what it's all about. So the current standings right now, the United States sits in second behind Canada. They're four points behind Canada. Canada's basically locked their spot up. They got a plus six goal differential, which is plus one over Mexico sits in third. United, the CONCACAF gets four teams, and the fourth place team gets a play-in game against basically a random team. Mexico has had to do it a couple times. The United States hasn't had to do it, I don't think, ever. I could be wrong about that. Mexico's had to do it a few times. But how many points qualify for a World Cup? If we're using the past regional World Cup qualifying cycles, for historical comparisons, we need to use the points per game metric, PPG, <laughs> since there are only 10 matches played in CONCACAF final qualifying phase in the past years, compared to the 14 on the calendar led of Qatar 2022. Uh, although the number of matches will be different, the top three spots, points per game in bold. Okay, I didn't need to read that part, sorry. <laughs> Still qualified directly for each World Cup list below, beginning with the 20, 2006 World Cup, the fourth place team advanced the play-in series against the nation from another region. Table low, and it goes over the table for that. Uh, what leaps out from the table is 1.72 points per game figure. So basically, you need to win or draw. You can't <laughs> can't lose. Uh, equating to about 24 to 28 points, standing points, would seem to be the magic number. So 24 to 28 right now, the United States, again, is at 18. So you need to get at least... A win against Mexico will be massive. And then a win at home in Orlando against Panama should, by all accounts, if you beat Mexico, knock it out. Because right now, as we said earlier, you look at the current standings. Panama sits fourth. Mexico sits third. You beat the third and fourth place teams, you're in the World Cup. So that's all that really matters. Or if Panama loses their next game, I don't remember who they're playing. But you need to win those games. You need to win those games. But assuming there's no missteps at home like there were four years ago, that still might not be enough. A result on the road against Mexico or Panama, which will be huge, would likely be necessary to steal the place of the top three unless results involving chasing teams happen to fall the Americans' way. So, yeah, we, they beat Honduras, which is massive, and they need to beat Panama at home and Mexico on the road. Or you can just beat Costa Rica on the road as well. But that Mexico win would be awesome. So it realistically needs to happen for the United States to be comfortably in that 1.72 points per game range, 24 to 28 points, Needs to qualify without breaking the sweat. We take a stat. Okay, they go through the projections and stuff. Basically, again, just beat Mexico, and that starts off a chain reaction of games to where we start making the World Cup. And Mexico, they've had success against them in 2022 and 2021. So it's pot or 2021, I guess. They've been three times in 2021. Need to happen. Need to happen again. Panama is a team, no matter how bad they are or how good they are, United States always seems to struggle with them. They're one of their three losses in in this World Cup qualifier, or this calendar window, I guess. Because they lost them friendly to Switzerland right before the Gold Cup and right before the Nation League final. Then he lost to Panama. That was their first loss since May 30th. That was on October 10th. And then they lost to Canada back on January 30th. So they need... Beating Mexico would be awesome. Beating Panama. They have to win two of these games. They have to win two of them. Costa Rica... Right now, I guess for the rest of the standings, I guess they really didn't go over the rest of the standings for you for the United States and Gold Cup qual or CONCACAF qualifying. Costa Rica currently sits fifth on 13 points. We got El Salvador in ninth, Jamaica seventh, and Honduras in last. They are eliminated from World Cup qualification. It's going to be tough. U.S. plays third, fourth, and fifth place teams in qualification. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. So, yeah, they're going to need their players to be playing at their top level. They need to figure out who the goalie is because that will be something huge going for the United States going forward, whether that's Matt Turner or Zach Steffen. Choose one. 
Just choose one. I don't want to go through the situation that we had a few years ago between Brad Guzan and Tim Howard. That was awful. It was a very stupid time frame for the United States men's national team where Jurgen Klinsmann got in his feelings about Tim Howard and even Landon Donovan picking Mix Discarude for a World Cup squad over Landon Donovan is ridiculous. Mix Discarude did not even play a second in that World Cup that year. But yeah, ridiculous. So figure out your goalie, figure out your best center back partnership, your best formation. To me, the best formation the United States has run with is that 4-3-3 with a midfield trio of Adams, Musa, and McKinney, and then a front three, which has worked really well recently. I'm kind of surprised how well it's worked out. But recently, Pulisic, Pepe, and Weya. But obviously we know if, we- if once Rea gets healthy, Reina's going to slot in at right wing. We know that. So the midfield three and the front three are pretty much locked up. The back four and the goalie are still up in question. I think Destin and Anthony Robinson are the wingbacks. That-, that pretty much goes without question. Healthy John Brooks starts. And then we need to find a center back partner. If you're going off current form or what Burhalter's really liking, he really is like playing Walker Zimmerman. Walker Zimmerman was the last captain for the United States, if I believe, against Honduras. But Miles Robinson's the more athletic of the pair. You have a very athletic center back partnership between Brooks and Robinson. That would be the one I would go for. But also someone like Chris Richards would be in the mention up there. Mark McKenzie will also get some mentions in that category as well. But goalkeeper, between Stefan and Turner, I don't know who you go with, to be honest. So that's why I'm leaving it to the manager. So I said he needs to pick one because I have no idea where to go with that. Personally, I think you'll go with Stefan. I think. Because if you look at the past recent game, or look at the history between Stefan and Burhalter, Stefan has been captain one of the most times for the United States during the Great Cup Burhalter's period as manager. Stefan has never let the United States down. So it was kind of strange or hard for me, I guess, to say Matt Turner overtook Zach Stefan because Zach Stefan didn't do anything to lose his job. And that happened right after the Nations League final as well, because if you remember, Zach Steffen got hurt against Mexico in the Nations League final. So Ethan Horvath came in to save the penalty against Andres Cuadrado and win the game for the United States. So right after that game, it started becoming a thing that Ethan Horvath is now challenging Zach Steffen. But that was basically, we said this right after the game was happening. Like, that was just romanticizing the situation. Ethan Horvath is not on the same level as Zach Steffen. So to say that, you're just going way overboard and going like, oh, that, mo- that moment was awesome. But Zach Steffen's better than Horvath. And Steffen didn't play for a little bit after that. And then you have the Gold Cup. Zach Steffen, regardless if he's starting or not, is going to the World Cup. Unless he gets hurt, of course. But Turner was going in with one cap to his name. So that was going to be a tournament for Turner to get all of his caps, get some experience. And he played, jeez, awesome. Played amazing. I think he allowed one goal from open play the entire tournament. I know he allowed a penalty against Martinique with Emmanuel Riviere scoring the penalty. I think it was Emmanuel Riviere in the Gold Cup. But I couldn't judge Stefan on that. Stefan hadn't played. So to say Matt Turner, who had an amazing tournament, clearly beat out Zach Stefan, was a little short-sighted, at least for me. So Burholder's been rotating the pair, but again, <laughs> he needs to figure that out. I'm not responsible for figuring that out. I think he'll edge with Stefan. Stefan. But that's just how I'm seeing the situation right now. And again, like we talked about earlier, I think there's about, jeez, at least 15 spots that are locked in for the World Cup for the United States men's national team. I think there's a few spots that are locked up. So here we go. I had a squad that I made. And I I went through a whole 23-man squad. I think that Stefan and Turner, so there's two, are locks. I think Dest is a lock. I think Tyler Adams is a lock. Anthony Robinson is a lock. John Brooks, if healthy... Caveat there, if he's, if he's healthy, is a lock. Giovanni Reda is a lock. Again, if healthy, he's been battling some injuries with Bruce Dortmund. He just got uh, subbed off today 
with an injury, so hopefully that's nothing serious. He looked like he was in serious pain with that, so we'll see if he comes back full strength. Weston McKinney, he's the second-best player in the United States. So, yeah, he's a lock. Uh, Pulisic, he's the best player in the face of the United States men's national team. He's a lock. Brendan Aronson, the most informed United States men's national team player at this point in time, is a lock. Then you got Miles Robinson, to me, is a lock. Based on how he's played recently and how athletic he is, I think Berhalter will like that. He's put up some big performances. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. He got a red card a few games ago. Back again. Who was that against? Was it against El Salvador? I believe it was against El Salvador. But I think Miles Robinson could... Uh, well, We'll keep the next two out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cross off the next two. I think Pepe is a lock as well. If you look at some of the strikers the United States has, and we've talked about the United States striker situation for a while now in regards to Sargent can't score, and Sargent's been basically converted to a winger, or do-everything winger, because ever talking about work ethic, I think Sargent's probably the best out of the United States men's national team strikers that they have available. If we're talking about natural goal scorers, he's probably the worst out of the ones that or at the forefront of consideration for the 2022 World Cup. And at one point, he was seen as the next great hope for the United States striker position, and uh, he's not. It's really nice. Scored a beautiful goal, scored two goals for Norwich a few days ago, and scored a beautiful scorpion kick the other day against for Norwich again, his first two goals of the season, and one of them was a goal of the season candidate. But yeah, he shouldn't be in consideration. Daryl DK, I haven't heard a lot about him. I don't think Berhalter really rates him that highly. He's just a big set, big forward, very athletic. Very powerful forward, but I don't think Berhalter really rates him that high. I don't remember the last time he's actually been in a squad or played significantly for the United States. He's playing for West Brom over there in England, so we'll see if that goes well for him. I think the big three you're looking for for the United States men's national team in regards to strikers are Ricardo Pepe, who's young, Jassi Zardes, who I think is just a favorite of Greg Berhalter, and Jordan Pifuck or Jordan Siabichu, however you want to say his name. I think those are the big three. And I think you could throw in someone like Jesus Ferreira. I think Berhalter really likes him. I don't think he'll make it, but just to mention some other players, Tim Way, I guess, technically counts because he plays striker at times, but he also plays winger. Same with Matthew Hoppy, another player that can play striker and can play winger as well. Nicholas Giacchini is another player. He played in the Gold Cup, played some significant minutes in the Gold Cup for the United States. But I just, I'm just mentioning players. I'm not saying, like, I don't think Giacchini, I don't think Hoppy, and I don't think Ferreira will make the World Cup, but just players, just so we know we're mentioning certain players around this, so we know what the depth looks like for the United States. And then other players that I think are locks are Jonas Musa, I think Tim Weah, based off his per recent performances for the United States. If you look at the past couple games for the United States, Tim Weah has been the best player with his performances. He's been the best player for the United States, so I think he's a lock. And then I could make arguments for DeAndre Yedlin and Kellen Acosta for being locks as well. I could make arguments. Same with uh, Sebastian Legette and Jonas Musa. Did I mention those two? I think Sebastian Legette's one of those Burhalter favorites where I think he'll make it regardless if he's actually deserving or not. He's a very, uh, what do you want to call it, versatile player. I think he's played every single position for the United States in regards to midfield and attacking. He's played as a false nine before for the United States. And there's been times where Burhalter's picked a team of every single player in the squads from Europe except for Sebastian Legette. I think he's just a player Burhalter really rates highly. I think he's one he can trust. I think I'd throw Paul Ariola in that mix as well as players he could trust because I think this was going back to the Gold Cup. So I don't know if this is still technically correct, but there was a time where Burhalter had Sebastian Legette and Paul Ariola playing the most minutes and most games for the United States men's national team during a certain time period. So I just think he'll be in the mentions for that. So if I had to build a squad right now, here's what we're looking at. Either Turner or Stefan for the number one spot. Then Dest... Walker Zimmerman, 
I think Burhalter really likes him, re- likes him a lot. He's not the most mobile center back in the world, but he's a very he's a very good leader, very imposing power. Jeez, very imposing force at the center of the defense for the United States. Tyler Adams, again, if it's not Weston McKinney, he's the second best player. He's the next best player. Andy Robinson slot locked in as that left back spot. John Brooks, if healthy, is the best center back the United States have. If healthy, uh, Giovanni Reina, very versatile, could play as a number ten, maybe he could play as an eight, but he's been predominantly playing as a right winger for the United States. Weston McKinney got out of the doghouse and has played back to his old self. Jayassi Zardes, again, just a very um, personal favorite of Greg Berhalter. I think if you're talking about things strikers do well for the United States, if you're talking about like Josh Sargent and his work rate, or if you're talking about PFUC or um, DK in regards to his goal scoring ability, Zardes, I think, is the most complete striker the United States has. Do I think he's the best? No, but I think he can provide a little bit in regards to versatility because he also play on the wing. He started off as a winger for the United States and has transitioned to striker very nicely. He's at the double digits, goals, and assists. He's one of the few players for the United States to do that. He's the second youngest player, second least appearances for the United States men's national team to get both numbers. I think he's just behind Lane and Donovan. But I don't think Zardes gets talked about enough in regards to his work rate for the United States, so I think he's going to the World Cup. Christian Pulisic, him or Adams is going to be the captain. I mean, Pulisic's the best player. Adams is probably the best leader the United States has. He's not the most vocal person, but he's a really good leader. He leads by example. And Pulisic is just the most naturally gifted player the United States has had in a very, very long time. <laughs> he's just very, very good. And one thing I saw over this past weekend, so Chelsea was taking on... Oh, crap. Who did they play? I just watched it. Crystal Palace. Chelsea just played Crystal Palace, and Thomas Tuchel, the manager for Chelsea, played Pulisic, started Pulisic, and Chelsea... Under Tuchel have traditionally played in a 5-2-3 or a 3-5 or 3-4-3, however you want to look at it, formation, with Pulisic traditionally playing as a winger and sometimes stupidly playing as a wingback. In this one, you could technically probably classify them playing in a 5-2-3 or something of that nature. But from what it looked like from Pulisic's positioning on the field, it looked like he was either playing as a number 8 in the midfield or... Or as a number 10, he was very centralized with Jorginho and Conte playing a little bit deeper. It looked like they were playing a 4-2-3-1. With Pulisic sitting as a 10, Hakim Ziyech at right wing, and uh, Kai Havertz at left wing with Lukaku up in the middle. And Pulisic played very well against Crystal Palace. He scored five goals in five games against the Eagles, so it was expected that Pulisic played in the game. But I liked that. Because if you watch the early stages of Greg Berhalter's tenure for the United States men's national team, he was playing Pulisic in the midfield. You had a midfield of Tyler Adams, McKinney, and Pulisic which is working awesome because this gave Pulisic a lot of chances to get on the ball. Because if you look at some of his runs and look at some of his heat maps from when he's playing on the wing for the United States, a lot of it moves more centrally. So I wouldn't be too against Pulisic moving in more centrally. I know his natural position as a left winger, and I get that because he's very fast, he's a very tricky winger, but if you want him on the ball as much as possible, you see this like Brazil with Neymar, you see Argentina and Messi. I'm not comparing him to Messi and Neymar, but you want your best player on the ball as much as possible, keeping the more central areas, which is where Pulisic thrives, or thrives, where he transitions more to for the United States. Zlatan Ibrahimovic did the same thing for Sweden for years, which ended up hurting Sweden in the end because they needed him to stay for because they had no other strikers. The United States at least has other wingers at their disposal and other midfield. So, like, he can play pretty much anywhere and they should be fine depth-wise. Like, against Honduras, when they played up in Minneapolis or St. Paul, wherever Alina's Stadium is or Alina's Arena is, he didn't even start. Pulisic didn't start the game. He didn't start against Mexico either in the last World Cup qualifying game they played against Mexico. So, like, Pulisic can come off the bench and make an impact and play centrally, play on the wing, wherever. 
He's your best player. And I just thought it was very interesting that Chelsea was playing him in central. More central. I thought that was very cool from what Chelsea was doing. Uh, next one, Brandon Aronson again. This is a number order, so you're wondering what the order I'm talking about is. It's not like players, I think, well, this is the order that I would rank them. No, I, I have them numbered, okay? So there's squad number. Brandon Aronson's the best 12th man the United States has, apart from the fans, obviously. But Brandon Aronson can come off the bench and provide an insane spark on the wing. He plays either left or right wing. I love it when he plays on the left wing. He plays more as a number 10 or a number 8 at club level. But for the United States, he plays really well as a winger. And again, he is the most informed player for the United States right now. And I'd love to see him start. I think he's very worthy of a starting spot because I think when I did a World Cup squad prediction, jeez, it wasn't the last one I did. It was a few months ago. It was like back in July, maybe. It was, it was a while ago. I had a midfield three of Adams, McKinney, and Pulisic with a front three of Giovanni Reyna, Jassy Zardes, and Brendan Aronson. I think that's a formation that they could really roll out, and I think it'd be very successful. But Burhalter really seems to like bringing Brendan Aronson off the bench, and he seems willing and able to do that. So, either way, he's making the squad as a lot. He's a lock to make the squad. Uh, next is Miles Robinson again, the most one of the most athletic center backs they have. He's been ever present for the United States ever since the Gold Cup, where he was listed in the team of the tournament. He had an awesome tournament, won the tournament for the United States, scored a goal in extra time against Mexico with a beautiful Kellen Acosta free kick. Which again, I've said this during the Gold Cup. And I've said it recently, Kellen Acosta, if he's on the field, should be taking set pieces. I don't want Sebastian Legette on it. I get Pulisic the best player. He's going to want to take free kicks and corners and all that stuff. Kellen Acosta has the best delivery out of every single player on the disposal for the United States men's national team. Gianluca Busio is up there as well, but Kellen Acosta delivers a perfect ball Damn near every single time. And he's on this list as well. He's on this list as well as a backup to Tyler Adams. And he's very versatile as well. I really like uh, Kellen Acosta, well, especially when he's at FC Dallas. He got in a little funk when he first moved to Colorado, but now he's starting to get into frame the form, and he's been playing really well and ever-present for the United States. Uh, we already talked about Stefan and Turner. Uh, Christian Roldan, I think he's probably the last name on this list that you would expect to make the squad, but I think he's just another player that Berhalter really likes. He'll put him in with like the 86th minute or the 86th minute or something like that to just see out a game. Always running. Never seems tired. Well, I mean, it's in four minutes, but hey, you'd be surprised how tired people can get in four minutes. I am one of those people that when I would play soccer and I would be a left back, left back, left wing, wherever, because I was always faster than everybody, I would do short bursts all the time and be pfft, done. I'd be done. So you need players like Roldan that can play on the wing, can play in central areas, can even at times, I'm not saying he does this all the time or he does it that well, he can play as a false nine if need be. So if you need to get a little more defensive and just want to bring a false nine in or play him as number 10 and have the wingers crunch in a little bit, play more inverted and have the fullbacks just stream up the field as much as possible, that might work. So I don't think he'd play a lot of minutes in the World Cup. I think he'd fill maybe something like a mixed Discarude role, but he's way better than Discarude. That's not really saying a whole lot, though. But I feel like he's been one of those players that you can trust in those types of situations where you're trying to see a game out. Next one, Chris Richards. Most potential out of all the center backs the United States have. I think you can really make an argument between him and Mark McKenzie. I think you can make an uh, argument between Mark McKenzie, Zimmerman, maybe. Maybe Robinson, maybe John Brooks if he can't stay healthy, but... Chris Richards is a very exciting prospect. He's been balling out for Hoffenheim, playing still on contract for Bayern Munich as far as I know. So, yeah, Chris Richards will make the squad. I'd be pretty shocked if he wasn't. Next one, Ricardo Pepe. Again, I think he's the best striker the United States has at this point in time. His form for the United States recently, 
if I'm remembering right, I'm trying to remember his last recent games for the United States. Man, excuse me, hold on. I gotta click on some things here because <laughs> I don't remember. Okay, he hasn't scored since October, so it's been a little bit since he scored. But again, he's one of the more probably the highest potential next to Chris Richards out of the youngsters for the United States. Man, well, it's weird to say Giovanni. Uh, Giovanni Rand is only 19, so I should I should keep considering him up in that realm, but I just, I think of Giovanni Reina being older just because I he's been around forever. Next one, Sebastian Legette, again, just a very trusting player. Jonas Musa, awesome player. Very tireless worker. Very athletic, can play both on the wing or in central midfield. He plays mostly right wing for Valencia, but he can play central midfield and has done and balled out there for the United States. Very, very hard worker for the United States. Next one, Sean Johnson. Not the gymnast, Sean Johnson, the goalkeeper. Older player, just won MLS Cup with NYCFC, it's going to be between him and Ethan Horvath. But Horvath doesn't play. So I kind of got, the last time I made a World Cup squad prediction video, or not video, uh, blog post, which you can check out on the LoganBlatmanShow.com under the blog section. Scroll down a little bit. And while you're there, might as well check out the latest mock draft we did, which I don't really like anymore, but you can still check it out. I ended up picking Horvath. But in hindsight, I would definitely pick Sean Johnson. He's playing. He's playing very well. He's experienced. He's been around the United States men's national team since Tim Howard's been there. So I would pick Sean Johnson over Ethan Horvath, but I went with Horvath in that case because I was trying to go with what Berhalter would probably do. Uh, next one on here is uh, Reggie Cannon. I think the United States will pick three right backs. I just think they will. The left back situation for the United States after Anthony Robinson is not great. Like George Bellow, Sam Vines... There's a few others up there, but those are the main two you would look at for center or left backs past Anthony Robinson. But the thing is, Sergio Des can play left back. It has done for the United States, both at United States level and club level. And the thing I like about Dest at left back, and you saw this in a few games with him and Pulisic working together on the left wing, Dest will cut in and rip shots. He scored an insane goal against Jamaica. He scored an insane goal a few months ago from right back, but... Left back, if need be, Des can fill a job there. And I think Reggie Cannon is probably the best defensive fullback the United States has because you look at the other three we have on this list. So you got Des Robinson. I already said DeAndre Yedlin was going to be on here. And Cannon, like Des Robinson and Yedlin are just run forward. Think about defensive responsibilities later. Basically, wingers playing left back and right back. That's what they are. Now, their speed and athleticism allows them to track back with relative ease to where they don't really get beat back that often. Now, Dest has had a little bit of an issue at Barcelona recently. We'll see where he goes. It looks like he's going to transfer sometime soon in the near future. But Cannon is probably the best defensive right back they have and just defensive fullback they have in general. I really like Reggie Cannon. I think Burhalter really likes him too, so I think he'd pick him there as well. Tim Weah, again, Based off recent performances, he's been the best player for the United States. If we're talking about just performances for the United States, he's been the best player. He has just been awesome on the right wing, providing assists, running tirelessly down the wing. He's been awesome for them down there. And then, like we said, Yellen Acosta. So that's your 23-man squad. I don't know who the number one goalie is, but it's between Stefan and Turner. And then, uh, yeah. So recap of the squad, I go Turner, Stefan, whoever you want at number one. Dest, Walker Zimmerman, Tyler Adams, Anthony Robinson, John Brooks, Giovanni Reyna, Weston McKinney, Jayassi Zardes, Christian Pulisic, Brendan Aronson, Miles Robinson, Zach Stefaner, Matt Turner, Christian Roldan, Chris Richards, Ricardo Pepe, Sebastian Legette, Jonas Musa, Sean Johnson, Reggie Cannon, Tim Weah, DeAndre Yedlin, and Kellen Acosta. Now there's certain players that we can mention that will be in the running for that. So like for goalkeeper, I think again, Ethan Horvath will be mentioned up there. I think Brad Guzan 
who I don't really rate that highly because of the whole situation regarding him and Tim Howard and Jurgen Klinsmann. He'll be in the mention up there because he's still kicking it for DC United or for Atlanta United, DC United's goalkeeper. Bill Hamid could be mentioned up there. I wish Tim Melia got more of a call look in for the United States, but he probably won't because he's 35 years old. But if I would love it. I would love it. And I know he's younger than Guzan, but Guzan's had 67 caps, so that experience will be big for them. We've already brought up George Bellow. I think someone like Aaron Long, if he could just stay healthy, because he can't stay healthy more than John Brooks can't. And he doesn't have the same ceiling as John Brooks. So when you have a lower ceiling and can't stay healthy, your spot is not as guaranteed as someone like John Brooks. <laughs> and Aaron Long was the first captain under Greg Berhalter. Like, if we're looking at favorite players, because favorite player for a manager is different than favorite player for the fans or the better players of the team. So, like, players that we mentioned before, like Legette, Areola, Roldan. I think Aaron Long falls in that situation as well, or falls in that category as well as favorite players for the manager that aren't necessarily the best overall players, but they're very trustworthy for the manager. Aaron Long is like that. He just can't stay healthy to save his freaking life. Brian Reynolds, uh, he's currently on loan at, I'm not even going to try and say this Belgium team name, but he plays for Roma. <laughs> he did. A uh, 20-year-old right back. He's on the outside looking in pretty much, though, just because the right-back slot for the United States is one of the more locked-up spots for the United States if you're looking at the roster. Already brought up Sam Vines. I think James Sands is someone that can be mentioned up there as well. I think James Sands is perfect if the United States want to run a back three. If they want to run a back two, James Sands ain't even sniffing this squad. There were times in the Gold Cup after Walker Zimmerman got hurt against Canada where Miles Robinson, this is why Miles Robinson and I rank so highly, because there were times where James Sands got caught up a lot defensively. And Miles Robinson had to track back and make an insane tackle or insane run to stop the play because James Sands either A fell over or just got beat because he's not that fast. James Sands is a number six that can play in the back three. He plays that middle center back because what you're looking at in a back three for what the United States was doing for that tournament for the Gold Cup, they were really playing something of a 4-4-2 diamond, essentially, or 4-1-3-2 formation. Basically what Juventus was running when they had a midfield of uh, Pogba, Marquisio, Pirlo and uh, Arturo Vidal. Basically that midfield. Not not the same level, of course, but that, that similar formation and stuff like that. Where James Staines would push up the field. Like You look at someone like David Luiz, who has an insane record in regards to transfer fees going from Chelsea to PSG and then back. In a back two, David Luiz is seen as one of the biggest laughing stocks. Now he's, I think, if you're looking at the grand scheme of center backs, he's obviously a very good center back. But if you're looking at the top, top center backs, which he would sometimes get considered in, he would kind of get laughed at because of the fact he get found out so much defensively because he made so many stupid errors. But in a back three, like you saw against Chelsea, or with Chelsea with Antonio Conte, how much he could push up the field, saw him play his arguably his best soccer of his career was during that last season with Chelsea when they won the league under Conte. Sands is like that. Not that level, but would be more suited to a back three. So if the United States wanted to run a back three, he's the number one, should be the number one candidate for that middle center back. I think he's perfect for that. But if they don't, he's not sniffing the, the plane. Uh, Shaq Moore's another one right back. Had a great tournament. If Reggie Cannon didn't get hurt, we might not have seen Shaq Moore as much. But with Reggie Cannon getting hurt, Shaq Moore made the most of his circumstances and balled out. Shaq, Shaq Moore was the best right back at the Gold Cup. Shaq Moore was awesome. He scored a goal in 20 seconds against Canada. We were there. It was awesome. But sadly, I think with Reggie Cannon being back, Reggie Cannon goes above him. Because it's kind of a similar situation to that of Stefan and Turner. Where... Reggie Cannon got hurt. He didn't lose his job. And I think Reggie Shaq Moore falls in that realm of the Yedlins, the Dests, where he's a very good attacker. Defensively, kind of struggles at times. He's a natural winger, but has moved back to right back. Robin, uh, 
crap. Once again, Cannon, again, the best defender the United States had in regards to right backs and left backs. Tim Ream, I think it's an interesting one. Left back, center back combo. Very experienced player. One of those players that falls in the Greg Berhalter really likes him category. But he's older. He's 34 years old. He'll turn 35 before the World Cup. But I, I would not be shocked at all if he picked Tim Ream. I would not be shocked at all if he picked Tim Ream. Uh, moving on to midfielders. Is there anyone that really sticks out? Gianluca Busio, I think someone that could really... I think he can make some noise. He's been playing it week in and week out for for Venezia over in Italy. One of my favorite players. I have his jersey, Sporting KC kid. So I'll always have love and respect for Gianluca Busio. I just don't know if he'll make it past this midfield because it's a very tough midfield to get into. Then we're looking at four. We already talked about people like Hoppy, like Sargent, P-Fuck. Conrad De La Fuente is an interesting player. Very high ceiling, but don't know if he'll actually make it. Playing for Marseille right now. But he doesn't play a lot for the United States. He has three caps to his name at this point in time. Last call-up was in September, so I don't know if that will actually happen. But uh, Daryl DK, very talented player. I just don't know if Berhalter really rates him that highly. Josie Altador is an interesting one. It's kind of been frozen out, and rightfully so. I think that if we had more strikers at the disposal for the United States during that time period when Josie Altador was going off for the United States, and when I say going off, I just mean like playing a lot of games, not necessarily going off, like scoring a crap ton of goals or something like that. He would not be at 115 caps right now. But that's the situation he is in. Because the other strikers he was playing with, Chris Wondolowski couldn't do anything for the United States. Robbie Finley, why was he ever in the conversation for the United States men's national team? I think he had like six or seven caps, start 15 or something like that. And he started in the 2010 World Cup. Why was that a thing? I think Charlie Davies would have been mentioned up there more if he hadn't gotten in the car accident. Bobby Wood was an interesting flash in the pan for a little bit. Then... uh Aaron Johansson was a very interesting one. He substituted for Altidore after he got hurt against Ghana in the 2014 World Cup. What other strikers were there? uh, Oh, um, Houston Dynamo. What was his name? Brian Ching was another one that, not good in the MLS, couldn't do anything for the United States. There's a few more like that as well. But there was just not that many good strikers for the United States during this time period. Like, there was a season in Sunderland, Josie Altidore scored one goal. How many national teams willingly have their number one striker score one goal, and he has no competition for his spot. So he's just going to get in no matter what. Josie Altador was never in fear of losing his spot because he had no competition. So he didn't need to score at least 10 goals in a season because he could go by with one because he didn't need to do anything. But, yeah, he's not going to make the squad. He's pretty much – his United States career is basically done. And Tyler Boyd was an interesting one. Tyler Boyd got called up to the United States in the 2019 Gold Cup – Switched nationalities from New Zealand and hasn't been seen since pretty much. I think Jordan Morris is an interesting one. I really like Jordan Morris. I think Jordan Morris is the most, probably, well, he's the fastest player the United States has, but he can't stay healthy. He's destroyed his knee like three times. But I really like Morris. I think Morris is an interesting player. I think he's one of those fringe players. Same thing with Paul Ariola. I like Paul Ariola. He's a hard worker on the right wing. Doesn't do a whole lot in regards to end product. We're looking at that, but he's a hard worker, like we've talked about before with another few other players. Any other players that are really up there that are like maybe players? Probably not really. I didn't really think I'd be talking about the United States men's national team this much, but that's how little we've got going on right now. <laughs> we've actually, good lord, we've made it over an hour. I did, I have not checked this one time. We have made it over an hour. This is ridiculous. I had a whole segment planned for a whole NFL thing, whole NFL thing about how we were going to go over quarterbacks that I liked or who, how high I was on certain quarterbacks because I think I'm really high on Trey Lance. 
we're go over quarterbacks that I like or don't like <laughs> because Trey Lance is expected to be the starter. And there was a quote going around about Joe Montana and Steve Young talking about Joe Montana thinks Jimmy G should stay. And Steve Young said Trey, Lund- Trey Lance should play, which is very ironic because Joe Montana was the Jimmy G and Steve Young was the <laughs> Trey Lance. Different levels. I'm not saying Jimmy G is Joe Montana because that is asinine. That is ridiculous to think about. But yeah, that's it was just something that popped up. So I wanted to talk about it a little bit. And then saw something was like, which offensive rookie would make the biggest leap in year two? Trey Lance, because he didn't play. So I think Trey Lance will be up there with players that take the biggest leap out of year two, guys. But yeah, that was all I really had today. Oh, and one, one other thing. Last thing. I'm not a Chiefs fan. You know this. I don't like the Chiefs. Chiefs are my second least favorite team in the NFL. But why, why, why are we actually having conversations about top five quarterbacks in the NFL and not including Patrick Mahomes? Why is that a thing? I saw this on ESPN where they didn't, Acho didn't include Patrick Mahomes in his top five. Josh Allen was one, which I agree with. Then Herbert, Stafford, Rodgers, and Burrow. No. No. First off, we're going romanticizing thing because remember Matthew Stafford's now a Hall of Famer and now he's a top three quarterback in the NFL. No. The top three quarterbacks in the NFL, if you think otherwise, I'm just going to call you stupid, is Rodgers, Mahomes, and Allen. Whatever order you want, those are the top three quarterbacks in the NFL. Those are the top three. And then after that, I would go Burrow, Herbert, or Lamar. Because I think Lamar gets a little bit of a bad rep. I don't think there's anybody in the league that could do some of the things Lamar do. I know he could, he's very frustrating at times passing the ball. I know he can be very inconsistent in that realm. But no one can turn a 10-yard sack into a 50-yard touchdown and running the ball. No one else can do that. I'm t- I don't like the disrespect on Lamar's name, even though he can at times, like against the Browns this year, where I think he had three or four interceptions. I don't want to see the disrespect for Lamar Jackson. I don't want to see that. But to not include Patrick Mahomes in the top five quarterbacks in the NFL is ridiculous. That is stupid. <laughs> that is very, very stupid. And that was on ESPN. That's not like some random hocus-pocus random website. No, that's supposedly the worldwide leader in sports talking about Patrick Mahomes not a top five quarterback in the league. That is ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. And the final thing I want to talk about, the dunk contest. I didn't watch it because I didn't care. I mean, the dunk contest went from 2016 where you have the greatest dunk contest arguably of all time between Levine and Aaron Gordon to now dunkers were 7 of 25 in the first round and Jalen Green went 1 for 9 on his first dunk. That's the level we're at right now. People are calling it the worst dunk contest of all time. And it's sad because Zach Levine was sitting right there. Zach Levine could be in the three-point competition. So he was right there and just didn't do it. Aaron Gordon said he's never doing it again. (laughs) So they screwed themselves out of that one. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw another hiatus from the dunk contest like we did back in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, where the dunk contest just didn't exist. So <laughs> we might be seeing that here in a little bit. And yeah, I think that's all I've got for you today. The new Batman movie comes out March 4th, which is awesome. Getting more and more excited for that. There was a new commercial or going to be a new preview for that during the All-Star game. I'm not going to watch the All-Star game because I really don't care. I'm just I'm going to follow along and see what Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan are doing because those are the only two players I really care about because they're Bulls players, number one seed in the Eastern Conference at this point in time. But yeah, that's all I've got for you today. I really hope you enjoyed the show. If you did not, leave a rating down below and tell me why you did not like the show. If you did, leave a rating down below as well. Tell me why you liked it. I didn't think this show would go the way it did, but you know what? That's the realm we're in without NFL football. So <laughs> no college football either. But we'll get more draft stuff coming up in a little bit. Reminder, no show on Wednesday because I'll be going to the Iowa versus Michigan State basketball game, which will be awesome. Luca Garza's numbers getting retired, which is beautiful. So, yeah, no show Wednesday. Hopefully be back for you on Friday. Hope you enjoyed this show. If not, I apologize. Make sure you follow me on all forms of social media, and I will see you all later. Peace.